Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX. Welcome back, everyone, to the Near Future Podcast, brought to you by SDGX and TechSauce. And I am really excited today. You know, at the, the Near Future Podcast, we're often talking about some of the future technologies and how it has an implication or an impact on society. But often we take an investor's perspective or we take a startup or a founder's perspective or something like this. But this is really sort of close to my heart. And to get, today we've got Dr. Marky Twist, who's going to really sort of introduce us to what the reality of some of the technology, how it impacts the family, how it impacts relationships. Um, so, let me, so let me say hi to Dr. Marky Twist. And um, Dr. Marky, um, introduce yourself and let us, let us know, what, what, are you, what are you doing these days? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, David, um, on the Near Future podcast. And, and thank you, everybody who does remarkable work uh, to make this show possible. It's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I am currently uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed mental health counselor. Um, and I do a private practice out of Las Vegas, Nevada. So that is a small part of what I do. I'm also a certified sexuality educator and supervisor. So there's an intersection there with um, when we consider the role of sexual technology, as well as mental health and family relationships. There's, there's a lot that I explore in those areas with people I work with. In addition to that, um, I'm, I'm in the academic world. So I'm the program coordinator of the Graduate Certificate in Sex Therapy at the University of Wisconsin Stout and a full professor in the Human Development and Family Studies Department there. And then um, I've co-authored a couple books related to technology. One was the Couple and Family Technology Framework, Intimate Relationships um, in a Digital Age, and that came out in 2014. And then a follow-up book, which came out about a year ago, called The Internet Family Technology and Couple and Family Relationships. Um, and those are kind of the big projects I've been doing in addition to that. Most recently, my research and my clinical work has focused on digi sexuality um, and then digi health, like actually looking at what's healthy about our digital relationships and engagement. Because so often people assume uh, addiction or it's not healthy. And we didn't even really have a good definition of what it meant to have a good relationship with technology. So my colleague and I did an informal study of like, how would you define a digitally healthy relationship? So that's the stuff I've been working on recently. And, and I am excited to have this conversation about the near future and what it'll look like. So I share your excitement. <laughs> and, and this is sort of the crux of the situation at the moment. And because just to go back a little bit, I remember when I was growing up, I grew up in a small village in Canada, farm village in Canada. And if I couldn't see you, I didn't know you. It was that simple, right? So all the kids around the neighborhood, it was a small village, but all the kids around the neighborhood, that is who I grew up with. That is where I got my influences, my knowledge, my ideas. 
um, and started to put things together. But when I look now, I've got three daughters. When I look at them now, they've got friends who they would call good friends, but they don't know their real names. They know their handles. They're from countries all around the world. And these are people that they trust and where they're getting their influences and their information from. Now, that has got to be really impactful between generations. And we start to see this happening now. But what is the big difference between, you know, the way I grew up, let's say, and the way that my daughters are growing up right now and even the future kids when they're when their whole lives are going to become virtual and online? Where does that impact? Because clearly you're going to get the argument that this is bad, mm-hmm. but, it can't, it, but it can't be all that bad, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, you can't throw the champagne out with the cork, right? Like not all of this is bad. And actually we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for technology in the modern sense of how we're experiencing it. And, and it's wonderful to be able to share conversations and knowledge with people all over the world. And, and I actually had a similar growing up experience to you, David. I grew up in Houston, Alaska, which is a small town. It's a village uh, with 700 people about the size of Rhode Island. And so the nearest neighbor was like 10 miles away and there were more moose than people. Right. And so I, I agree with you. I, I had a very, shall we say, isolated growing up experience, but a very familiar one. Like I knew, I knew all the people around me for sure. Uh, but that was all that was available. And that's all that's available culturally in that context too. So I think this generation, and I don't know if, if your daughters are more millennial or Gen Z, but I know for sure the Gen Z generation or Zoomers, depending on how they'll call themselves after a period of time. But I think their ability to form connections with people both near to them, far to them, known to them, unknown to them is much greater than any possibility we had in Gen X or the generations before that. And, and well, we should have caution there, right? Like I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't be mindful and thoughtful. I think what we need to do is actually literally just that. Um, I think we need to consider technology as if it were a member of our family. Um, and if we think of it that way, then we'll have a much more purposeful and intentional dynamic around it. Because as the technology grows and changes, so do the kids, so do the people, so does society. And so it's this dance that we have with each other of growth and change. And the biggest thing we have to do is just give it attention. I mean, you can't pretend like it doesn't exist and everything's okay. You have to have conversations with young people about, hey, you're talking to people in other places. And you don't actually know who they are for sure, right? Like you have to at least explore that with them and have caution. But also we don't want that caution to turn into like technophobia or fear of other people or fear of new things, especially when we have to remember this is happening from within the confines of wherever you're at. So you can turn off the technology. And how, and how does this apply? Let, let's cut across the generational divide in that sense. Yeah. When you look at the, you know, the fastest growing group of innovators are those over 50, 55. The fastest yeah. group of 
people getting online is really into that class, the 50, 55 and up yeah. class. Now, how does this cut across the generational side? Because young kids, okay, everyone's on their phones. They're getting used Everyone. to it. They can relate with each other. But for the older generation that are getting online at a much faster rate, and I think that's even more so here in Asia because the middle class is growing a lot faster mm -hmm. here in Asia than it is in Europe and North America. And so they're getting on. So how does are you is your research research looking at sort of the 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 older people getting on and what that means for their family relationships? Yeah, it's it's a wonderful point. And it's definitely happening. Like another way that we see people kind of in the 50, 55, that older population making use of being online, they're still like the number one consumers of Facebook. You know, like they're the people that are still using that technology as well. That huge social media platform that is in many places, not everywhere, but many places. So older people that I have been working with clinically and then also have been studying in terms of lifespan um, engagement with technology. What I'm seeing is a couple different things. And I think it's really powerful. One, they're able to connect. They're able to connect with their family at a distance. And, and that's amazing. And especially during what we just went through in a pandemic, like what an opportunity to get to still have a connection with kids, grandparents, people at a distance, thank goodness for the technology in that regard and the ability to connect. The other way I am seeing older people make use of technology more recently is their, their interest in, in the digi-sex, in the sex tech, because that's the main area that I do my work in. And so, I mean, older people are now engaging in a lot more sexting, I mean, they're watching online porn. They're in online porn. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. They're buying. They're buying sex toys. Uh, you know, they're 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 buying sex dolls. Not as high in the other demographics. It's more people buying them. Mm -hmm. But well, we are seeing this. I mean, there is definitely almost like technology is creating <laughs> to use technology language is almost creating like a second life for people in older generations. And, and it's, it's amazing. Like, I think that's remarkable. So yeah, it's a big change. Now, when you, when you talk about Digisex, you're, you're talking hardware as opposed to virtual reality. So that is a great question. So the way that Dr. Neil MacArthur, who's based out of university in Manitoba and I have defined Digisexuality is this way. Um, there's two waves. The first wave of digisexuality was definitely the hardware. It was um, sex toys, you know, actual like engagement with online porn, like where you actually have to have something that mediates a human technology exchange usually. So it usually involves other humans and then some sort of hard, hard hardware type technology, something that's tangible. Second wave, however, is where things get much more interesting and where if we think about the near future, it's where I think we're going. And actually, in many places, already is where we are with some people. So you're looking at like VR sex, augmented reality, sexual experiences. I would still put sex robots here. 
Um, even though it's it's hardware, you know, it's it's actually in many ways not different than a vibrator. But for whatever reason, the moment that we make it humanoid and also have, you know, more explicit intelligence, people have a different relationship to it. And so then it becomes more second wave technology because the difference between the first and the second wave digisexuality is the second wave is it doesn't need to involve a human experience at all. It is just the person having a sexual relationship with the technology itself. It doesn't need a human partner. It is not, that is not the preferred way of being. And for some people, this really leads to a digisexual identity. They just really, I mean, they've decided or they have an orientation, who knows, we don't know but they have a connection with the technology itself, not necessarily to humans through the technology. That's interesting because I would assume, or I would have assumed that the technology represents somebody um, or represents something, but somebody, something like this. And you, so you're sort of getting your connection. The, the hardware is doing what the hardware does best. Yep. Maybe it has intelligence so it, it can actually yep. adapt and learn. Yep. But yep. the hardware does what the hardware does best. But what the mind is doing is living within sort of a, a different sort of fantasy, a different sort of dreamscape that's going on. And that's related with a human. Um, a human you know, a human you don't know. It really doesn't matter, but it's related with a human. And, yep. and, I, and I can see this cutting across, you know, some sense of virtuality where it could be remote control. So there is some mm -hmm. person out there controlling mm -hmm. the hardware that's having an impact on me but there's that mm -hmm. connection that's always related so it's not the machine itself um and that's and that's why i'm actually a bit surprised about that because i think maybe yeah. the next step as you were alluding to going into either ar or xr some sort of a full body experience yep. of and if i can create my world where i meet the people i want to meet in my world and engage and interact with them the way that i want to in my world mm -hmm. What's, what is actually going to stop people from just opting out? And this goes beyond digisexuality. This goes, this goes into a life discussion, right? Absolutely. If, this, if, if the physical life, this is sort of where the work that I'm doing, but in the, mm -hmm. if the physical life is just not acceptable, uncomfortable, and you feel much more comfortable and uh, much more actuated within a virtual environment, mm -hmm. why not just simply opt out? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we see this already. I think we do see people opting out a bit. I mean, when you look at people who are heavily immersed in a gaming reality, right? I mean, this is why the World Health Organization, which is not without controversy, why the World Health Organization in 2018 said, hey, there's a gaming disorder. This is something we're worried about, right? Because so many people, particularly many people in Asia, and I know Asia is a broad place, right? There's lots of places within Asia, but we were seeing people, and I'm sure you know this, we were seeing people who were literally opting out of taking breaks to go to the bathroom, taking breaks mm -hmm. to eat, taking breaks to drink water, taking breaks to sleep. They were literally so immersed in a gaming reality or have been so immersed in that reality that they're opting into it instead of life. And this life, anyway, this tangible life. I'm not going to say that isn't life. It's a different kind of life. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, there might be people that just 100% have very little interest 
in uh, whatever this form of reality is apart from a virtual way of being or an animated or augmented way of being. That could happen. It could. I don't know but, if it but, will. But the transition on that that I think we're seeing is that, you know, and I remember the jokes, you know, the, the gamers oh. sitting in their rooms and they, they only eat flat food, food that can fit under the door, you know, these types <laughs> of things. But then you've got the evolution of esports. So now you have careers, you have an economic opportunity coming yep. out of your ability to yep. be an advanced gamer. And it works yeah. into that direction. So it sort of went into that dark area. The dark cloud was there, but that silver lining sort of comes out. And I know parents now that are pushing their kids towards esports. If they're good at gaming, we'll yeah. get into the game, get on a team and see if you can make it a career or something like this. So it's interesting yeah. in that. Or go to college for it. There's scholarships for esports now. I mean, it's a whole different world. And then, <laughs> And that's the evolution is coming out. So when you start to talk about digisex or having that whole sort of virtual family, mm -hmm. not having a real family, a physical family, but a virtual family mm -hmm. and how that's going to evolve. There are some implications, obviously, when it comes into work, when it comes into how do you deal with physical life if you become mm -hmm. overly comfortable in a virtual life. And that's so how do yeah. you transition between the two? And what is that? What is that problem with the transition? Can you take some of the characteristics and this is the interesting uh, that I find specifically with my daughters or with younger people, that they have characteristics online that they mm -hmm. find hard to transition and bring with them offline. Yep. And I think and I think this is so when you talk about sexuality, there's always this concept, mm -hmm. true or not true, but there's always this concept of porn addiction, that there is sort of yeah. a false sort of understanding of what sex is if you watch too much porn. And then when you start to apply that into a physical relationship, it doesn't quite work. And uh, how, how, how do you figure, how do you sort of work the dynamics between that out? Yeah, that is a great question. So here's kind of my, my overall thoughts there. That was, there was a lot going on there. So one of the things you mentioned that young people and your daughters are a good example. I, I have a child who's 13 uh, and, and is definitely a digital native. He's grown up with technology. But you're right. There are some ways of being in an online environment that the leap to try to behave in similar ways offline is challenging. And so in the framework that Kat and I developed called the Couple and Family Technology Framework, there's actually um, different ecological elements. So when I'm working with people around technology-based concerns, whether those are concerns in the tech side of it or the non-tech side in their everyday relationships, when I'm helping people try to manage these realities and ways of being, we explore eight different areas. Um, and I don't worry, there won't be a quiz, but, but some of them will come up later. So we explore what's acceptable. Um, what about anonymity, right? That's, that's a huge concern people usually have. Um, accessibility. I mean, right now, the, the work-life spillover, there's no such thing as a division between work and life anymore. That's, that's high accessibility now. Affordability, which is a huge issue when we get into talking about like uh, divides around technology use, right? Ex the affordability is a definite concern. Um, approximation. And this is the one that I think comes up quite a bit. Like how much does your virtual or your augmented or your online reality and the way you are 
how much does it approximate the way things are offline, right? And that approximation is having sex online the same as having sex offline? I don't know, right? It's approximation. Um, Accommodation is a big one too, where like I might present myself one way online and present myself another way Mm -hmm. offline, Mm -hmm. which kind of brings up that idea you had mentioned um, before we got started today, that idea of cyber identity type issues, like who am I and, and how does that show up? Um, and then the last two are ambiguity and accountability. And a lot of the, the questions that we're raising today are about ambiguity. Like we're just not sure about so many things yet. And so that's why even just having conversations is important, even if we don't have all the answers, right? Because if we don't have some clarity around technology, I think this is going to <laughs> get away from us much faster. Uh, than we could have anticipated. So like one way we know conversation is different and this always shocks people, but it might not shock you is when you have text-based communication. Like let's say you and I start texting or we start talking through chat or even back in the day we email each other, right? Like let's say we do that. What happens when you do that is it actually builds intimacy and closeness quicker than if we had talked on a phone met each other online or met each other in person. And that's because guess what? I can censor how I am when I type stuff. I can wait to respond. I can be really thoughtful. I can be really witty, right? I can be this almost totally different person through text-based communication. Plus, I'm not interrupting anybody. They're not interrupting me. When I meet in person, however, could be a totally different exchange. And I think that part, even just basic text-based communication and the way it affects relationships, I don't think people really even understand that. And we're not even talking about that technology has been around for a very long time now. We're not even talking about like future. We're talking about even past and now, right? And so when we get into what's addictive about technology, what's possibly addictive about watching porn... I think those questions are very hard to answer because we don't even have an idea so far really of what's healthy, what's normal and what's healthy. And so a big area I've been exploring is just what does it mean to be digitally healthy? What does that even mean? Right? Because we don't even have a sense of that. So I I don't know if that answered it, but definitely I think there are Big things on the horizon and things we don't even understand yet about technology in the role of our everyday relationships. Well, I think I think that's that's an understatement. I think I totally agree with that. And I get so many questions coming out. I got to get them into my head here now. But, <laughs> right. but but the thing is, and 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 the the I think what we're seeing now is we went through a bit of this with the internet, right? So this internet, relatively an unsophisticated technology. Um, a single technology that gets put out there and it has major disruption, social disruption, but also economic and commercial, even political disruption. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the research is still trying to understand the last 20 years of the internet. And at the same time, we have five or six clusters of technology, um, extremely sophisticated technology from, from AI flat AI, all the way up to genomics, new material sciences, all these different types of things that are going to come down the pipeline. And it's Mm -hmm. going to come down faster. 
Mm -hmm. um, it's going to have a much bigger impact because the crossover, um, mm -hmm. AI is interesting, robotics is interesting, but AI and robotics now becomes extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. And we do have this, and we have these sort of, this concept of virtuality coming in. So it is going to happen fast. Mm -hmm. it's, going to, it, it's going to happen before we sort of realize it. So mm -hmm. I think around virtuality and relationship building or family units, family units have a large impact before that even happens. So there's a lot of things coming out. One question I do want to ask is that the framework that you're working on, is this a tool that a young person can use with their parents so they sort of understand them or a parent can use to try to understand a, a younger generation? Is, yes. is, is it that type of tool or is it more a professional tool? Nope. It's, it's a tool that could be, can be used by everyday people. Um, and it also is helpful in a professional helping sense as well. There's really only the ecological elements like I already talked about. And actually, I have there's whole tables available online of questions to ask about each of those elements with kids, with parents, with partners. Um, and the other two parts of the framework are changes to structure. So like the rules, roles and boundaries in relationships and what does technology look like around that, right? Like that's why you have to keep talking with, you know, if you are a parent, you have to talk with your kids about the rules, the roles and the boundaries around the technology use. And then if you have a partner, you have to do the same thing because, you know, for, for example, like someone can be very comfortable with a partner watching online pornography maybe watching it with them, which actually leads to more satisfaction. So they can be very comfortable with that. But if it's VR, somehow it becomes more uncomfortable for people, right? Because now it feels too real. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a back, we're back to approximation. That's that question. And we're like, do we have to renegotiate our rules, roles, and boundaries because of this new technology and our relationship to it? And then the process. Technology also changes the process of relationships or influences it. So like how relationships form. I mean, I remember when online dating was viewed as, you know, at best ambiguous <laughs> and at Nasty. worst, definitely not acceptable. Yep. People yeah. saw it as not acceptable unless they were in like, you know, distanced based situations, or they were like part of the LGBTQ community that's been dating online for like ever. Right. And, and within those groups of people, it was acceptable, but it took, where are we? It took 20 years for everybody else to be like, Oh, online dating is a fine way to meet. Yeah. That's totally mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. Right. So technology affects how we form relationships, how we maintain them and then how they end. I mean, it, <laughs> You want to talk about the future, like people are, are getting to the point where they can, you know, they can infuse dolls and robots and technology with their ideas, their history, their stories, their, I mean, is that an end? I don't know. But I do think that this framework, I'm sure it's not perfect, but at the same time, it's pretty easy to understand and and we need to we just need to pay attention to technology in a thoughtful way in our relationships, but then also not give it too much attention unless we want that to be our whole thing. And I love that you asked the point later uh, earlier where you said, um, 
but don't, you know, don't, I never would have thought second wave digisexuality or digisexuality was about, um, the person wanting to have a relationship with the technology itself, the machine itself. I would think it was about still more about connection with humans. And I would say that for me, it's like that, but there are definitely people and maybe, maybe they're just making the technology more human than it is, but a really interesting study came out just recently published in actually the journal of religious studies. Mm. Um, and it was out in Japan. I was going there. <laughs> oh, good. And, and they good. You read it too, because there's hardly nothing. Right. And, and they literally asked people if they'd had sex with their dolls. Right. And, and only 59, 33% had said, yes, the majority of the people hadn't done that, but then they asked them if they thought the dolls had like souls or had a heart, right? They actually, and that 58% of the people said, yes, yes. Like that's bigger. That's bigger than just sex. And that's certainly bigger than just the technology itself. Like that's amazing. Like these, these consumers of sex dolls are kind of thinking of these dolls as, you know, humans. They're thinking of them as another being, right? And that's more about attachment than about sex, I think. I mean, and, and I'm just happy they have someone they can feel connected to because guess what? There's sometimes people don't have other humans. So that's fine, but interesting. Well, it's it's interesting that and we were discussing this before, but um, when um, I had mentioned I'd interviewed Sophia, the, the, uh, the robot, and and I met her um, designer, her her emotional designer, and as we were discussing, we were talking about the behavioral libraries because they're collecting everything. All the data goes into behavioral libraries, and they sort of plug and play their behavioral libraries into Sophia, depending on the situation that she's going to be experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I asked her about religion. I said, "Is there a moral or ethical library that you're actually feeding into her?" And and at the answer at that time is, was that they had had discussions about it, but they didn't do it for two reasons. One, they didn't quite know how. Um, this was a few years ago. And the other, they didn't know which ethics or morals to actually embed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she was, a, she was a female designer from California. Sophia comes out of Hong Kong. And I was doing the interview in China. So, so... And how do you feel that all together? And this is goes into now as part of the discussion, because I think sex is down the value chain. Relationships is sort of that big question, right? Whether mm-hmm. there's a familiar relationship like families, friends, these types of things, or a work relationship or an academic relationship, student, professor. These mm-hmm. All these relationships, again, the pandemic is a great example because we've sort of accelerated the, the um, digital transformation. Everyone's been mm-hmm. forced to sort of apply now, either working on Zoom or working remotely or doing all, all schools online, managing mm-hmm. teams online. So the virtuality has really been forced onto a lot of society at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it drives into that area when it comes into relationships. And we may be able to have that discussion. Two questions coming up. We may be able to have that discussion. But one question would be is, are you actually working a lot with you know, ethnology or anthropology or these types of people and how does that sort of fit in 
That's one question. The other question is, when we move out of the developed countries, we move out of North America and we move out of Europe Mm -hmm. and into a country like Myanmar, Mm -hmm. uh, Cambodia, Mm -hmm. Indonesia, Mm -hmm. uh, Malaysia, where there will be Mm -hmm. a bit of a divide based on wealth and based on, um, but there's also that cultural divide pushed into it. And, and quite honestly, all the religions, they're, they're all friends of sex, whether they want to admit it or not, they're all friends of sex. But how does that sort of cut across that when you get into developing mm-hmm. countries? Because I think that the new technology wave is going to have a much bigger yes. impact on developing countries because of the leapfrogging and their ability to jump ahead as opposed to a lot of the developed countries, North America and Europe, that have so much legacy infrastructure in place that it's going to be very difficult or very costly mm-hmm. for them to jump ahead. So those are the two, those are the two signs, mm-hmm. and they're actually connected. I think the anthro-ethno mm-hmm. sort of question is really connected with these yeah, other Yeah, I totally agree with that. So first of all, I agree with you in that I think one thing that, that sex and sexuality does in general with technology is it – it motivates people to uh, push technology to consumers. So I think that there's been a lot of progress made through the aims of sexuality and the combination of that and tech. So I think I'm grateful for that. I really am. I think that's been amazing. Having said that, I think that technology and our relationship with it is much bigger than that. And I agree with you that we are not only going to see that and we are seeing it, but we will definitely see that more in developing places. So so I mentioned earlier the idea of digi-attachment, digital attachment. So this is the idea that you not only have attachment bonds and relationships to other humans through technology, which we know we have attachment bonds, but I actually think that we have attachment bonds to our technology itself. And, and I think that ability to form a connection to what, what we might consider an inanimate object, which is not really accurate, but the closest thing we have to it. So for example, uh, one question I ask people around this is like, did you ever have a security blanket or a favorite stuffed animal? or anything like that when you were a kid. And most people pretty much everywhere have something at some point that they felt connected to. And and I ask them, did you love that? And they're like, yes, of course. And, And I say, well, did it love you back? And they're like, no, but I mean, and I'm like, right, right. It doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter if it loved you back because you felt secure having that object around you. And for some people it's a place They feel secure in a place, not necessarily with an object. And then I usually ask people, like, where is that object now? And like half the people can tell me still where their security blanket is from when they were like three years old. Right. Mm -hmm. Like lots. Then I say, did you ever have a connection to a piece of technology where you feel so, so much connection to it? Like some people have separation anxiety from their technology. And that's almost the same. So mine was a Blackberry from like, you know, 2008 or something. And I still have it. I can't get rid of it. I love it. I love how it feels. I miss it. I, I really do. So like we have attachment. And so here's what I think when it comes to the cultural part and the anthropological ethno- ethnography type part. I think, first of all, 
what we're talking about is both the future, but I kind of feel like, and, and I'm not a incredibly aged wise person yet, but I hope to be one day. But as I age, what I really realized is truly nothing is more than just old wine in a new bottle. And so when I think about the connection, particularly in places that don't have the same access to resources yet, I think about how they've had connections to objects before. And when they have connections to their technology, I think it'll be attachment feeling. I think it'll create a sense of feeling close and connected, not only to other people, but through technology and with the technology itself. And if you if you go back historically and look at Japan, I'm going to keep going back there because there's just tons there, right? Mm -hmm. If you go back, you know, during the Kamakura period, which was roughly like 1180s to like 1300s. And I, I know it's not exact, but they had mechanical dolls. And those mechanical dolls mm -hmm. were used for entertainment and also privately. And they had deep connection to these dolls. Like people thought they had a soul. People thought they had a spirit. And that's a long time ago. That's like a thousand years ago. This, this is not necessarily a new thing. I just think that we treat it new because everybody kind of has a, a bit of technophobia thanks to the Terminator series. That's kind of what I'm thinking, mm. but I'm not sure we need to be as afraid. I think we can, I think we can be more excited than afraid. That's my thought. <laughs> oh, I, th I think, honestly, I think when it comes out at a, at, at a price base yes. and an access base, that's um, easy to, to, to get into it. I think it's going to happen really fast. and. I think it's to one point. One one of the things I think when you're dealing with technology, hardware or software, one of the things that really sort of brings on the connection I find is the fact that you can personalize it. You can program it. So whether it's a laptop, whether it's an iPhone, whether it doesn't really matter, you can actually put your own your own themes, your own images, mm -hmm. you know, this type of stuff, right? Having that ability to I don't want to say program, but let's say mm -hmm. let's say design or let's say create even. Having the ability to create the relationship, the other side yeah. of that relationship, I think that is going to be the big one. And I think my fear is that it's going to become too predictable, right? So having relationships, the, the, the fact that you don't know 100% of this person, that unpredictability is yeah. what gives it that little edge yeah. of excitement because you're not exactly sure what's yeah. going to come out of it. Where if you program yep. it 100%, right? And I think this is where we get into the behavioral libraries, that if, if you are allowed to experiment with 60% of the behavioral libraries, but 40% are hard-coded mm -hmm. or something like that. So you, you, so it's a constant ex experiment. You are always mm -hmm. learning something new from your digisexual mm -hmm. technology. It's mm -hmm. not 100% program. And I think that is what's mm -hmm. going to make it magic. And honestly, I think I, th I think it's going to take off. I think it's just, uh, I think it's where humanity is. I think it's where family units yep. are at the moment. And people are yep. looking for escapes. They used to have the travel bug. You could travel to places that no one's ever been before, but that's yep. slowly going away. But now the fact that you can actually create, I don't even know what to call it, spirits, ghosts, yep. ghosts and machines. But you can actually cr create that around you that is physical, so it's totally virtual. So it's not like um, Avatar, the movie, or something like that. These are actually that's physical right. things around you that you can create and have relationship with. I think that's 
uh, it's part of the Holy Grail. I don't, it's obviously not the Holy Grail, but it's certainly part of the Holy Grail, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And actually, I had never given much pause to the the nature of the fact that there's so much, so much of it will come from that co-creation. The fact that you will create those realities and create your technology and images in the way that you want. I mean, really what we're talking about here on some level goes straight to the idea of almost transhumanism. It's sort of the idea of sort of culture falls away because what's gender in that environment? What's, what's race? What's culture? What's, what's the gender of a robot? I mean, even, you know, I mean, they're (laughs) so it really brings us to a place of, you're right. It's almost like co-constructed transhumanist realities (laughs) and identity. Yeah. Oh, it is. And I and I think when you get on the point of um, biohacking, so a lot of biohacking is happening now, but it's it's very Mm -hmm. you know day one sort of um, thing that's happening right now. But once you start getting into something a little deeper or the sort of sexual Mm -hmm. side of biohacking, I think that is going to be a fascinating Mm -hmm. area to discover. And and I know I know we're running out of time here. I keep getting it. It was awesome. It was awesome. (laughs) But uh, but I think this is also an interesting area around the biohacking side too. That it's not you know it's it's man machine. It's not man nor machine. Sort of man machine. And how that and how those types of relationships can be actually built. So, anyways, we are we are actually running out of time. And this was a fascinating. I I hope we do this again in about six months. Super. Um, That'd be awesome. I want to. I want to get up to speed on this, but I'll, let me leave the last sure. statement up to you. When, when we look at the mm-hmm. Asian context and Japan on one extreme, mm-hmm. Japan and Korea on one extreme, you've got sort of India yeah. on another extreme, and then you've got sort of Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar. You got this on the other extreme, and these are creating mm-hmm. all the divides that are happening mm-hmm. within Asia because uh, it is extremely diversified. But I think. What is going to happen in the future is because of the under-regulation. When you look at North America, you look at Europe, they're very mm-hmm. over-regulated. And this is a problem with Silicon Valley and trying to get new technology out. It's over-regulated. The same thing's happening mm-hmm. in Paris and Berlin. Asia is basically under-regulated. That's why we're seeing such advances wow. in genomics that are happening out here. And advances in some. So my thinking is a lot of this new technology is going to get on the ground first in Asia. Yep. Due to the underregulation happening, so so in that context, what do you think? I'll give the last word up to you. But what do you think then when you start talking about mm-hmm. the family units, digisexuality, mm-hmm. um, te- te- technology mm-hmm. as part and piece mm-hmm. of relationships, not an add-on, not mm-hmm. an influencer of, but actually part mm-hmm. of that relationship? What what do you what do you think in the near future? What do what are your predictions? So yeah, you, no, I think it's a great question. And I think actually, I agree with you about the regulations in more Western contexts and how that's sort of stifling uh, more exploration and development. And actually, of like the US and the EU, I would say the UK is actually the most uh, stifled in this way. And I kind of consider them the most technophobic. Um, so I would actually say places like, Asia are going to be where not only does it feel like there's more of a history of openness, um, like I just described about mechanical Mm -hmm. dolls and other kinds um, of interactions. 
I think there's going to be more openness. And given that less regulation, I think it's something that's actually already happening in more of an organic way. That technology is becoming more infused and everydayness, and it doesn't have the same level of like stigma and phobia that it does in maybe Western contexts. And so hopefully we'll have a chance in the West, you know, to learn more. I mean, that would be fantastic to actually like learn more about how that infusion is going and how it works and what works and what maybe is less helpful. Um, yeah, there's a lot to learn. And, and I think we need to be looking more uh, to places like Cambodia and places I know Japan is and Korea are kind of extreme examples. But we definitely need to be looking more to those cultural groups and and places on the globe because the infusion is happening there. It's it's really not happening here the same way. That's true. Well, I, th- I, th- I think that's definite. When you look at the, the liberalization, uh, specifically here in <laughs> Thailand, for example, um, but also the, the, the extreme fine lines between culture and subculture yeah. in Japan, for example, right? Um, there is that line is so thin between that working man culture, what happens on the street and that subculture, what happens, you know, at night. Um, and it, that crossover happens rather quickly, certainly here in Thailand, you see it. So that's, that's why I think this, these concepts of new sexuality are really going to be ex- not exploited, um, yeah. applied here in a, yeah. in, in a lot quicker way because I of totally the cultural acceptance of that. Yep. Fascinating. Okay, then. Dr. Marky Twist, I thank you extremely thank for you. Um, coming on board. It, this is a fascinating subject. It's an underlying subject, I think, that has a lot of impact on um, other things, mm-hmm. economically, politically, socially. I think it has a lot, and it is. People are, it's communication and sexuality. Those are the two biggest issues mm-hmm. that people deal with mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's, it's the underpinning, and the more we understand about that, the better we are going to be, mm-hmm. our well-being and health, and the better the future of society will be in that. So with that note, thank you, Dr. Markey, and um, yeah, we'll talk to you thank soon. thank you. Thank you so much. Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX.